afternoon or evening, wherever or whenever we find you. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast, Doth Protest Too Much. And we have a very special guest today, Dr. Cheryl White, who's going to be talking about some uh, early history of the Episcopal Church, especially in the South, um, and the life of Bishop Leonidas Pope. So Dr. Cheryl White is a professor of history at Louisiana State University in Shreveport, her research interests include local and regional history, Christian church history, Tudor England, late medieval Europe, and folklore. She's the author or co-author of several books, including Historic Haunts of Shreveport, Wicked Shreveport, A Haunting Past, Essays on Folklore of Louisiana Antebellum Plantations, and Confederate General Leonidas Polk, Louisiana's Fighting Bishop, published in 2013, which we will be discussing as Polk is one of the main topics of today's conversation. Also, Dr. White is the host of a local radio program, The Shadow Files on Red River Radio, that focuses on such mysterious items and figures of history, including King Arthur, the Lost Library of Alexandria, the Valley of the Kings, and premature burials. Spooky stuff especially that last item there. So, Cheryl, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. Looking forward to this. So, uh, as our listeners could hear from a lot of uh, your research interests and things you've contributed to or written to, you uh, have a fascination with Shreveport, which is actually the town we are both in, we are both recording in. I've uh, served in Shreveport for some time in ministry, though I'm now in Lafayette, Lafayette Louisiana. And you've uh, so how long have you been in Shreveport? What's your what's your history personally with Shreveport? I was born and raised here, so okay. Shreveport is home, and uh, was very fortunate to be able to come back and teach on the campus, mm-hmm. the local campus of our LSU system. So I've been very fortunate. Okay, and so you you born and raised, spent some time away though. No, not really. Okay. I mean, I, I spent a little bit of time in Natchitoches when I was very small, but I don't remember it. Okay. Um, and so Shreveport is definitely my home, mm-hmm. and uh, which sort of speaks to my interest in local and regional history. Okay. Now, if you were to summarize Shreveport in two or three sentences, I don't know if that's possible, but or just in a not don't even worry about the number of sentences. Just like you know, what's All right, a good. what's a good way to kind of for any, any listener because we have listeners from kind of different places and just to kind of give them a basic picture of what Shreveport, Louisiana is. Um, I think you'd be better at this than I would. Um. Well, yeah, that, that's why they call us Louisiana's other side okay. is because when people think Louisiana, they naturally think of South Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So Shreveport is uh, an important um, uh, historical center for Louisiana because when we were founded in 1839, we were the furthest point west Mm-hmm. on the American frontier as the road to Texas. So our identity has always been very much wrapped up in the Red River. Mm-hmm. It's defined us. It was our earliest identity. And, of course, that forms the foundation of a lot of the work I've done, including, of course, on Bishop Polk. Okay. And um, and Shreveport has Polk and then some other, I mean, you've written stuff on hauntings of Shreveport. So there's there's some fascinating, maybe hidden gems or things of Shreveport's past that you've Shreveport's past that you've kind of unearthed then. Are, right, um, right. Is that stuff you kind of just came along came yeah. to along the way or Yeah, well I've always been um because my primary field of study in graduate school was medieval and early modern Europe. Mm-hmm. As a historian living in Louisiana, if I'm going to practice my trade, apply my trade and really apply it in a practical way, I don't have much opportunity Mm-hmm. Louisiana has no medieval culture, so right, right. <laughs> so I really got interested in the in the the early history, the colonial history of the state, mm-hmm. and then of course more more uh, intently focused probably on my own backyard here in Shreveport. And so in the process of that, what I found out is some of these very rich little cultural uh, nuggets that we have that 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 do express themselves in 
folklore, as much as history, but also a lot of folklore of Mm -hmm. the area. The urban myths, the urban legends, things like that have always been interesting to me as well because of what they say about the people who are here. Right. And it seems like to me like it'd be kind of it's it's probably more uncommon than it is common to have a, uh, you know, like a historian, but who uh, local history professor who's really immersed in the local history because right. people kind of end up places. Right. And to, so that's kind of it's kind of a gift for Shreveport to have someone that. Um, so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I thank you for for that for that answer. I think, Shre- you know, I, I would have a hard time. Uh, summarizing Shreveport still. I mean, it, it really takes someone who, who's been here. Yeah. It's really in their DNA. But. Well, and it, it really, it, it's hard for people, I think, to, to, to picture us as, as we're culturally so different from the rest of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. We are much more, our identity was much more wrapped up in Texas in the sure. very beginning. Economically, um, you know, if you, go, if you go to downtown Shreveport, you are 64 square block business district, you're going to find many, many streets named for heroes of the Texas Republic. Right. And that's because our early identity was um, wrapped up in, in Texas. And mm-hmm. so so people often say when they come to Shreveport, well, this seems more like Texas. That's yeah. not surprising. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, it's funny because when I when I moved first to Louisiana and Shreveport's where I was, um, uh, up until recently, my family and friends from you know, out of town. Oh, you know, you're, you're in Louisiana. Cool. We'll have to come visit you. We'll just pop over to new Orleans for a day. And I'm like, that's well, right. that's not something you can you easily, just that, pop to that's a about day. five hours away. That's a very <laughs> that's different right. part of the state. So. That's right. But we can go to Dallas, right? We can go to Dallas. Woohoo. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. just kidding. We have, yeah. we have listeners from Dallas who, uh, who, uh, so we're, we're not too far away from you at this moment recording. So, that's right. um, so one of your big, before we get into the main topic, one of your big interests, one of the uh, is is the Shroud of Turin? Right. Is, am I pronouncing that right? The yeah, Shroud that's of right. Turin. Shroud of Turin. And you've Turin. been on some um, international committees, and and you've you've really done a lot of research in that right. area. Um, so uh, what led to your interest in that? Well, first, what is the Shroud of Turin? Where I mean, uh, this is a religious podcast, but I don't know if, but even then, it's not always people aren't always familiar with right all these different aspects of church history. So, so it's a really compelling artifact um, um, or relic, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a 14 and a half foot strip of linen cloth that uh, mysteriously bears the image of a man who was scourged and crucified, mm-hmm. uh, who was capped with thorns, pierced in the right side in, in really vivid detail. It's, that's some very interesting imaging characteristics to it that have made it the subject of study for the entirety of the 20th century into now the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And every single academic discipline has been brought to bear on this cloth, and we still don't know how the image was formed. So I got very interested in this in the uh, in the early 80s when the first um, the first scientific studies began to be published in peer-reviewed journal articles. Uh, and, and I was fascinated by its mystery mm-hmm. uh, because I believe that objects of the material world will always give up their mysteries. They'll always give up their secrets. And this is the one object that I know to exist that doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And so so I got really interested then as an undergraduate in history and then in studying medieval history, you know, because many people thought that this had some kind of a medieval footprint to it. And then uh, in the late 80s, when the Carbon-14 dating was published, um, I was pulled even more into the mystery because everything we know about the cloth scientifically does not align with the medieval dating. Mm-hmm. And it, it made no sense to most of us. It made no sense. So now, you know, 30 years later, here I am still, still um, d- studying, uh, teaching about it, uh, publishing about it. I have had the great privilege of going to Turin and being with the religious and the scientific communities there that take care of this cloth. Uh, part of initiatives to teach about it to people everywhere on the planet. And it continues to to be something that is um, that is mysterious, yes, but also from an academic perspective, um, you have this this continual philosophical challenge that the more you know, 
the more questions there are. Mm-hmm. It's the very inverse of everything else that we have, that we that we study as human beings. Mm-hmm. And so there's a theological component to to it as well. For me, a philosophical theological component because it defies our understandings about how we know things. Right. So it it is a fascinating thing. And yes, I've dedicated my entire academic career wow. to studying it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, so you followed it for a long time. A long time. I, you know, I it, my experience with the Shroud, and I think we've talked about this before because we, for our listeners, we, Cheryl and I know each other. But that's right. Being in the same town, right. we spent many breakfasts together. <laughs> breakfast together. Coffee right. and everything. And shout out to Bess, who will probably listen to this at some point. Um, so, uh, a friend of ours. So, um, no, my history with the Shroud, I, I think, I don't know when I first heard about it. I, I think I might have, you know, back growing up, on cable TV, f- mm. flip through possibly Discovery Channel or History Channel. They might have had, might have, there might have been an ad or a commercial for it. I remember having an image of knowing what the Shroud was. I never, never myself kind of fought, looked into it or kind of Because um, on one end for me, and, and, and it is true, and you would agree that, you know, I mean, faith is ultimately not based on um, those types of things. Right. But also... Um, but also for me, for some reason, it just never really, I don't know if, I don't know if I exactly want to say, well, it seemed kind of far-fetched or something or, sure. you know, but I just never really, you know. And it's a then, pretty far-fetched event. It is, yes. Far, <laughs> yeah. And um, I remember when you first brought it up to me, I said, oh, okay, yeah, really, okay. So then, uh, but uh, down, the, I don't know how far away it was from, from when I met you, but I read the book, uh, Ian Wilson's The Shroud, and yes. I know you have. Yes. Tons of more recommendations probably for for uh, people who want to get into The Shroud. But there was the book by Ian Wilson. I'll put a show note in our episode uh, called The Shroud, Fresh Light on the 2,000-Year-Old Mystery. Right. And that book, um, I don't remember. It Again, it was like two summers ago that I, I had some free time to do some extra reading. And I read, and I don't know if it was, um, it's kind of like topography, how they look at maps. But this was with like depth on a piece of cloth. There was something about the that. VP8 analysis of 1976 that shows was it's it three dimensional. The, the team that went over there in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, the image is three dimensional. Okay, yeah. so it was it was that and a few other. Um, if if for any listeners want to check the book out, there's just some compelling things in there. Um, and if there if they weren't compelling, it was like it, it was a, it was an issue uh, where some aspect of the cloth they would bring in two experts um, from. I mean fields again outside of religion outside of right, the people from right. these scientific disciplines and um and they would have two people of high repute and they would be at odds with each other because one person would feel very strongly who had no had no no uh stake in the game like he was not right. uh, had no um ulterior ulterior motives or anything um in fact who is the who is the um photographer wasn't he isn't he a jewish yeah, the, man the photographer on the 1978 research project was barry schwartz and he mm-hmm. um he's jewish he's still very active um as a matter of fact he likes to tell the joke that when he was asked to go on to photograph this project he basically said you know i'm jewish right mm-hmm. and um and so when he, he he says that he got there he expected to be able to look at the cloth through his little loop his little lens and he was going to be there five minutes and see the brush strokes and he was going to be done right and and here we are 42 Four years, years later, later and he speaks about the shroud every day he runs the largest website on the mm-hmm. on the internet shroud.com uh, shout out to Barry in case he's listening and <laughs> uh and he is um the most credible vocal uh testimony out there about this cloth yeah. yes he is still jewish and uh and yes he believes the person is jesus christ wow so um I just, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it is a fascinating field. And of course, uh, I think you've really spoken on it, but but some people be like, okay, so Dr. White, she, she's into things like hauntings, hauntings and folklore. And all, that, right. and, and all these weird And I know things. you right. you kind of have a fun interest in Bigfoot. Yes. It's not serious, but yes. uh, at least I don't think. But no, some, <laughs> some people might say like, okay, this person's into this stuff. What, you know, what would she tell me to that, to distinguish the shroud from those fantastical right, things, right? Right, right? What would be, I guess... I guess, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say to that except to say that my that, that my interests run a very diverse gamut. Mm-hmm. And so 
Uh, I don't think that my interest in folklore or legend in any way touches upon my passion and interest in in what is a very real historical artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a, an academic historian first and foremost, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, my interest extends to many things. Right. And uh, I do not see the Shroud of Turin in any way, shape, or form as being anything remotely like folklore or right. legend. Um, and yes, I do have a, a, a fun interest in Bigfoot, but only from a cultural <laughs> phenomenon. Well, you, just, Arkansas is right up, right up right, north. And just, they have, I mean, you can find convenience stores that are themed Bigfoot exactly. and things like it's that. Just so. part, it's part of the, the really interesting, colorful culture. Mm-hmm. of America. And it's not just here in the South, but it's all over. And uh, so so one of the things that, that to, to touch upon the folklore thing is that um, you don't have to believe the folklore or the legend to touch upon the truth of what underpins it, mm-hmm. which is a commentary about the people. Right. It's a commentary about our place in history. It's a commentary about about how we receive and transmit whatever the, whatever the the cultural inheritance we have is, right. and so so I don't see these as as anything remotely connected. Sure, yeah. and it's also not it's not a Catholic thing. I don't know if it's I not a I didn't put in the introduction. Doctor White is is Roman Catholic. Right. Uh, attends the cathedral here, cathedral. where <laughs> we talked about Shreveport, where one of the only shroud museums in the north america right we have uh, we have uh, right now the um, the third largest collection of shroud related artworks and artifacts in the world Mm -hmm. and um and yes i i am roman catholic but but the shroud of turin is not a catholic thing um meaning that first of all the church doesn't own it i mean i think that's kind of a of a misunderstanding Mm -hmm. the living pope owns it but he didn't own it popes didn't own it until 1983 sure for for its history, it's been owned by the Dukes of Savoy. Right. You know, a secular mm-hmm. family. Secular family. Yeah. And uh, and you do a lot of talks at. You say you do more talks at Baptist churches. And I Protestant do well. Churches well, I I I've done talks for for all sorts of people, but but it's interesting that whenever we have an open event, um, for instance, if I were to say I'm go, I'm going to do a talk on the Shroud of Turin on next Saturday at whatever time. It, I, I'm, I'm always surprised at the number of non-Catholics who attend. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's always a very yeah. ecumenical group. Um, it runs the spectrum of not just Protestantism but post-Protestantism, evangelicals, right. uh, Bible-based. Um, so, uh, and there's even an interest, uh, increasing interest in some parts of the world, some parts of the, the Muslim world, particularly in Great Britain, have an interest in this cloth mm-hmm. for different theological reasons. I was going to say, it's kind of, yeah. I've never, I wouldn't it's have thought that. But. It's for different theological sure. reasons. They they believe that the cloth demonstrates that Jesus died and was dead. Sure, which, yeah, which but, they are, will, they, they will go that far in their right. belief of Jesus. Yeah, Absolutely. Not he was the a great resurrection, prophet. but. He was a great prophet, right. but this shows that he died. And and so there's there's been an interesting sort of, interchange between shroud scholars over that connection because there is no sign of physical decay or decomposition that's evident in the cloth Mm -hmm. and i don't think we would have known that or gone to the extent to learn that if it hadn't been for the conversation Mm -hmm. with with uh, with muslims about this cloth so it's interesting i i uh for one of the, one of the most prominent speakers on it. Um, I know we've been going on about the shroud, but I just want a couple notes on that. One one of the most prominent um, speakers on the cloth who's done a lot of. I I found him on like YouTube. If you just put in shroud of Turin, is um, uh, I think it's Gary Habermas, who's out of yes. Liberty University. Yes, uh-huh. and he's a big you yes. know in the American evangelical scene. He's right. kind of known as a popular Christian apologist type person, and so mm-hmm. he and uh, he he's written and spoke. A lot about his belief in in the shroud's authenticity. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay. Um, but we could do a whole other. We could do a whole thing. And you did. You did have a podcast for a while. I you did. did a, it was a not a ongoing one, but a thirty six episodes. Yeah. yeah okay. Thirty six episodes. Who is the man of the shroud? You can find it on iTunes. That's my. That's my only commercial break. <laughs> and I'll put a. Uh, I'll put a link to okay. the uh, to that right, to good. that in uh, or uh, in our show notes. So. Um, so, getting on with Leonidas Pole, kind of a shift of gears. That's really shift and, gears. And uh, we, uh, so, uh, so why is it? I mean, we'll we'll preface this with saying that there's there's the controversial aspect of Leonidas Polk. Um, he is one of the first 
really Protestant missionaries to the state of Louisiana. That's his historical importance. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. He's a bishop in the Episcopal Church, also a Confederate general. Um, and, and, of course, with recent uh, recent events in the past couple of years, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're rightfully more um, sensitive to uh, issues surrounding Confederacy, how that's interpreted and whatnot mm. today. So, but why is it important ultimately to still study controversial people, um, you know, in, in light of all that? Why, why would you say? Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, basically I think um, what we're being called to do in the age we live in is to think ever more critically about history. Mm-hmm. And, and and there's two ways I think that you can approach that. You can you can see that the, the whole cancel culture movement as sort of an extreme manifestation of that, that, um, that anything that, that is by our contemporary standards um, immoral or illegal or um, what doesn't fit our contemporary model of, of, uh, of, of social norms. Mm-hmm. One of the extreme reactions is to just completely dismiss it and, as I said, cancel it. In other words, get rid of it, take down the statues, move the monuments, um, don't have the public conversations anymore, uh, taking people's names off of buildings, moving Andrew Jackson out of Jackson Square is an example mm-hmm. of that. That's an extreme example of, of this critical thinking I'm talking about. The other example that I think is probably one we can use more effectively is to, and it, and it, it requires more of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to be very, very careful about saying that. It requires more of us than what I just described in cancel culture. Because what I'm describing as a critical kind of history is to look at individuals like Leonidas Polk who don't fit our contemporary model, our mm-hmm. contemporary understanding of morality or social, what is socially normative. Um, he wasn't in slaver. He owned a plantation. He owned 400 slaves. He was a Confederate general. Mm-hmm. And what can we learn about him that could inform our current age. Sure. I think that's where our challenge is in talking about controversial figures. The same is true, for instance, um, we can we can think of a, a lot of people from history, but one that immediately comes to mind is Christopher Columbus, because sure. um, there has been a, been a recent trend in the last decade or so to, to not celebrate Columbus Day, but to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm-hmm. And so Sort of my reaction to that, as as one of the, I like to think I'm a critical historian, is, of course we should celebrate Indigenous peoples. They are the story. Mm-hmm. They are the story. But you cannot dismiss the figure of Christopher Columbus, because without him being in the story, we wouldn't be having this conversation in 2021. Sure. Well, I've I've heard a good um, explanation of history is like like oh, this is really fascinating. They said if you were to take like if you were to take me out of existence, for example, okay, I'm not a famous person. I'm not in any history book, as far as I know. Right. <laughs> if right. you were to Today. take me out, Cheryl White might be in some history books, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, I if you just pluck me out, of, like erase my existence, it would have an effect on where's my, my hometown of Saginaw, Michigan. This is going to sound so silly, but this is actually like the way they, that I don't even know what the terminology for it's called. One person uh, involved with one event affects another person, yes. another person. I mean, it's an exponential. Yeah, there's an you exponential know, effect. An exponential mm-hmm. effect. I mean, it's um, so it's almost historic- genealogical yeah. in a way. And so, if you take so for someone like Polk, who um, we wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't have had several years of great ministry in the Episcopal Church in the Shreveport, Louisiana, or in Louisiana at all, right. sorry, without. You know, and the same could not be, even in Lafayette. Not even Lafayette, right. and the same could be said of of um, Christopher Columbus, who you yeah. mentioned, as far as our existence on this continent, right, in this continent, you and know. and so so I think our challenge is to to look at look at them critically, yes, and and yes, even even through a moral lens, mm-hmm. um, but but what can we learn? Right. What can we apply to our current age so that that, that it's not lost? You know, that we right. don't lose the lesson. Um, Polk is a complex figure, as you know, mm-hmm. um, for all the reasons we've talked about. Um, Personality-wise, he must have been an incredibly challenging person as well. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
gained that. I gained that from yeah, the book. Yeah, um, definitely a challenging a personality. But without whom, I mean, the bottom line is without him and his efforts in Louisiana, the as you said, the first non-Catholic missionary presence in Louisiana was Leonidas Polk. Mm-hmm. And so that has to go in the credit column. You know, sure. that has to, and, and how that influenced the culture, going back to, mm-hmm. to what you said about kind of that ripple effect of history, how I like to think of it as the, the historical equi- equivalent of the butterfly effect. Butterfly effect, yeah. You know, that, that, um, in fact, I think that was the word that you, that, wherever uh, I read about this yeah, phenomenon and how, you know, so. That, that without his presence here, what would the alternative have been? What would that have looked like? And given the, the, the sort of the, the standards and the, um, the lens of the age that he lived in, I dare say it could have looked much different with anyone else, I think mm-hmm. is, is my point. So so to have his personality driving this, um, the building of churches, laying cornerstones of little churches all over Louisiana, mm-hmm. right. and, and establishing the first non-Catholic presence here is huge. Right. Because it contributed to the diversity of the population in Louisiana. Sure. Because it was a very Catholic state well up it to still about, is up to, but about, it's, up to about middle of the state. it's, it's yeah. overwhelmingly roman catholic if you look just at the southern part mm-hmm. um this northern part we are in was settled by primarily anglo protestants from sure. from georgia and and the carolinas and um, mississippi for instance so um we didn't have as much catholic presence here in northern mm-hmm. louisiana but still overwhelmingly catholic if you look south of you know um, like where I'm now at. Yeah, where you are. So, <laughs> 80, it's yeah, 80 20 or something it's 80, like that. It's 80-20. <laughs> so. At least they culturally identify as Catholic, even if they don't practice. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and so Polk comes from um, kind of getting into his biography. Yeah. And you mentioned kind of that Anglo-Protestant. Right. He's steeped in it. Migration over to mm-hmm. He's steeped in it. Right. And so, and I don't know much about... Um, Coming as a Yankee from Michigan, I don't know much about Southern aristocracy. Um, I watched Gone with the Wind, but that's just that you know a a romanticized Hollywood depiction of <laughs> right. what they might have wanted Southern aristocracy to look like. But um, you know what? So what, what were some of the uh, traits, the customs, the social mores, and I mean just. What the feel yeah. of it? What? Well, I mean, he comes from a family that was um, with 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 roots that go back to Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, the Polks, actually, the family, the clan name was Pollock. Okay, and they seem to have kind of abridged the name when they came to the United States, settled in the Carolinas, North Carolina. Um, they were moderately aristocratic, um, okay. and uh, of course, because he was a son of that. He had the opportunity to go to West Point. Um, I guess you know from reading the book, he's a cousin of a United States president, James K. Polk. And so there's that connection, too. And 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 so when he comes to Louisiana, which eventually makes his way to Louisiana through Tennessee, because his first real um, um, parish assignment, if you will, mm-hmm. was in Tennessee, and um, makes his way into Louisiana, Arkansas, Louisiana, um, he brought that, I think, probably those attitudes with him of, um, I don't want to say, I'm very careful how I say this because I don't want to portray him too negatively, but I think anyone who reads his letters or reads uh, anything about his encounters with other people would probably agree with what I'm getting ready to say. So there's almost a sense of entitlement in mm. him and a sense of arrogance. I wouldn't say disdain towards others. He, to me, he comes off as very compassionate. He's very pastoral. Sure. He's, um, I, I think he's he's someone that would be a great comfort to have at your side. But when it comes to perhaps the, the points of conflict with others, it was his way of the highway. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And and I and I think that that is, you know, we we think about like what's in our DNA, like like. Our, you mentioned genealogy. You know what's in our DNA. He comes from this Scottish clan, who would have been very steeped in separatism, mm. separatism, both in the secular sense and in the sense of the sacred. I mean, the Scottish Presbyterian Church was its own entity, you know, mm-hmm. and and very congregational. Yeah. So, so um, 
I think that very much informed the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, so, but he doesn't, he's not a person of faith initially no i mean you, you mentioned the presbyterian roots he but really they, they of, must have been very nominal right from the from the from the scottish connection yes okay. um but but no basically unchurched, unchurched really until a young man and when does this happen at west point okay um there's a chaplain there by the name of McElwain. that, that McElwain, McElwain. i was trying to, i did some research McElwain. i'm going to share some notes about him in a second i was interested because he's from where I'm well, is that Ohio. right? He's from Ohio. He yeah. was the bishop of Ohio, and he had. I meant to look right. this part up, but I, I, he had to have had some connection with you know the seminary I went to uh, originally. Well, it was in Ohio when I was there, but it it was originally in another part of Ohio. It came out of Kenyon, and uh, is it McElwain? McElwain. Mac, Mac, uh, he didn't have any part in the founding that I know, but I know he had. Well, maybe he did, but he had to have had some connection. Uh, being the Bishop of Ohio, uh, probably around the time the seminary was formed. Oh, so, I would imagine so. So I, I looked up some other things about him, didn't quite get to that. but um, Yeah, so so Polk was exposed to, to Christianity, really, for the first time. Perhaps not, not the first time he was exposed to it, but the first time his mind and heart seems to have been open to it mm-hmm. was in his West Point days. And McElwain clearly made an impression on him. But what's more interesting to me is that McElwain saw in Polk something that led him to leave like tracks in his dormitory room, things for him to read, right. you know, never overtly proselytizing him or evangelizing him, but always in very subtle ways, perhaps reading Polk's personality in that way. Right. Because you can't just come at someone yeah. like that with, here, read, you know, you need, read to, this. You need to believe this. But <laughs> but was there at, at with with apparently just the right things at the right yeah. time because of course he ended up baptizing Leonidas Polk at West Point, right? And so um, so yeah, uh, he ends up and he, and he ends up becoming Episcopalian because right. and that was McElwain's, um right church affiliation as right. well at right. the time. So right. um, so McElwain, yeah, Bishop of Ohio, uh, he I found out he was chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Okay, with, um, his. Stu- other students, he had some other, you know, talk about controversial people. These are more household controversial people. Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis were okay. Uh, well, also, also, also students of his at uh, West Point. Oh, he was the president of Kenyon College. He was. I indeed. took. He was okay. the president of Kenyon College, which Bexley Hall Episcopal Seminary originated at, and uh, he was. This is interesting. He later ended up in the University of the City of New York. Um, after he declined the presidency of William and Mary, he goes to New York instead. And at University of the City of New York, he's named as the Professor for Evidence for Revealed Religion, which I'm curious on what oh, fascinating. that is. That's, evidence is that for like, Revealed Religion. Revealed, so is that the study of divine revelation, I wonder? Divine revelation, maybe apologetics. I know is the 19th century, so I know like in the Enlightenment had a big thing yeah, about natural a religion. a lot going on in yeah, biblical scholarship, In too. biblical scholarship. So it's, and uh, he wrote a trip, he, he was a self-identified, uh, he identified as part of the evangelical wing of uh, the Episcopal Church. Uh, di- and he's, that way he's different from another bishop who would have a bishop O. Bishop Bishop Odie Bishop of Tennessee, Odie yeah, of Tennessee, Another who was a, who was an Anglo-Catholic. McElwain, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, uh, I you can I'll put a, a a link to this in the show notes. But McElwain wrote a like a five hundred page volume rebuttal of the Oxford movement. Yeah. It's really interesting. Oh, fascinating! Um, it's that you can read it for free. It's digitized, right. um, archived online, and. Um, Something yeah. that Odie would have so, definitely disagreed with. Cause right, because Odie high was, was high church. And um, so, yeah, it was McElwain's book. It, it basically lamented the loss of what he felt of kind of the Ref- Reformation character the of Anglicanism. Character. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and for our listeners of this podcast, we've had a couple episodes on that um, kind of wing of Anglicanism. Uh, so Lincoln, uh, and also Lincoln sent him to Britain, McElwain, during the Civil War to urge Britain to stop recognizing the Confederacy. So oh, interesting. I'd be curious. I couldn't find anything. I don't know if there's really much out there on McElwain. And as Polk became general and the Civil War starts, we haven't gotten right. there yet. What their relationship. Yeah, there's not much like. out there about um, their relationship after West Point. So now what are, so McElwain has a big influence. So does Bishop Odie. What are a couple? couple things about Bishop Odie. Who's, uh, well, he was the Episcopal Bishop of Tennessee, and mm-hmm. he was um, 
in contrast to McElwain, high church, Anglican, um, very would have been very much in support of the Oxford movement. Mm-hmm. And so I find it interesting that both of these these contrasting, and, and again, if you think about Anglicanism as a spectrum, um, and the Episcopal Church in the United States being an expression of Anglicanism, obviously, I'm assuming your listeners all know that, but, <laughs> yeah. but um, I'm not using Anglican and Episcopal interchangeably, except in the historical sense, yeah. that that's where it comes from. So... So I find it interesting that Polk had both of these influences. Sure. That he had the spectrum mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of the low church evangelical and more high church Anglo-Catholic. Um, and, and I think what you see in Polk is an interesting blend of both. Mm-hmm. His theological, um, uh, his own personal theological leanings seem to be more toward the evangelical side. Mm-hmm. But I'd say it's also a little more like kind of like nailing jello to a wall when talking mm-hmm. about Polk because he was also very, very sacramental. And, um, and as you see in his ministry among slaves, for instance, um, that, that he, he had almost a, I would say a, more of a historic Catholic understanding of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. So, um, but a great preacher too. And so there, there's, there's all sorts of things that I think influence wise, he draws from both of those figures. Yeah. Um, well, and you have good preachers in the oh, Catholic uh, yeah. Church. Oh, yeah, and not, 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 diminish, not diminishing our preaching, no, no, not at um, all. Not at all. But it is, of course, a great tradition of of America coming out of the Great Awakening, the first right. Great Awakening, to have this these generations that inspire the next mm-hmm. of preaching. And that really is a uniquely kind of Protestant, evangelical, right. congregational movement, right. Um so, so he embodies that for me. You know, oh, yeah. And, and the evangelical wing, I mean, for our listeners that, that a lot of them know, uh, it is much more pronounced in the Episcopal Church in the 19th yes. century. It's kind of died out since in the Episcopal Church, various historical factors, but other parts of the Anglican communion definitely has more of those characteristics. Right, um, right, right. So, so it's Odie that convinces him to take his first parish assignment in Tennessee and um, settled in Columbia. Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, he had a uh, you know a, a really good influence there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, and it seems like Polk had a very evangelistic yes. spirit. Yes, and that ties into what was going on with the Episcopal Church overall in the nineteenth century. Right. They they started to make missionary bishops. Now I know, like I'd never heard of until I moved here. I didn't never heard that i actually knew i knew who polk was because of fort polk which my army reserve unit in michigan went to for a summer but i got out of it because i had summer classes in college and my company commander said it's okay for you to not go so you didn't have to go so i didn't have to go and everyone came back and they hated me because they were so miserable i'm just kidding they 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 had good morale and mission was accomplished of their training session but they said it's pretty rough with the mosquitoes and for some michigan people to be exposed to that it's pretty rough so um but so, yeah, Polk has this evangelistic spirit. Um, the general convention starts to actually look at the fact that we need to evangelize. And this is about 1835. Right. Jackson Kemper is a big one from the north. So right. um, who's the other? Finlander Chase. Oh, yeah. Uh, for as far as northern reaches of the country. But Polk ends up becoming important for the southern re- region of the country. Mm-hmm. What, what, what were, um, how does Polk fit into this again the... i think that it's it's sort of a you know it's one of the, the questions thomas carlisle asked the questions about about the great man of history if you heard this you know do 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 great men make history mm-hmm. or does history make great men you know are you are you born at the right time and with the right gifts sure or is there something that that is unique about you that mm-hmm. sort of drives the events and i think this is a case in in in, in polk's instance where People within the hierarchy, the the House of Bishops, for instance, identified his gifts. Mm-hmm. That that he did have great zeal, and I think, you know, I think this is true even today. I mean, you've been around someone who's a recent convert to Christianity. I mean, there is a zeal that's present. Yeah, there is. He has that. He has the the gift of oration. He has a very sharp intellect. I mean, graduated like eighth in his class at West Point. Mm-hmm. Very sharp uh, individual. And that he had the willingness to go. Mm-hmm. So so 
what the General Convention of the Episcopal Church basically asked him to do was to go to an, an unknown kind of wilderness frontier um, into heavily Catholic territory. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, that, that would mean going as far as the Gulf Coast. What they're really interested in is this area of Arkansas and northern Louisiana and part of Mississippi um, to to converting hearts and mind to the Episcopal Mm-hmm. Um, Episcopal version of the Protestant mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, I think he fit all. He had all the. Um, he could check all the boxes. How about that? Right. Yeah. How does he end up in Louisiana? Well, he's sent as the missionary bishop. He. I mean, he comes. Okay. He comes from, as I said, through through Tennessee into Arkansas. Um, he's missionary bishop of the Southwest was his official title, and that geographical territory. When they, we say that the. the the missionary bishop of the Southwest. Well, think about that. I mean, when I say Southwest, your listeners might be thinking Arizona, New Mexico, That's Arizona, what I, that's what California. I think of, yeah. <laughs> but remember that the American frontier in the 1830s stopped at Texas. So Shreveport's like Shreveport was the, the furthest the point Southwest. west. Wow. Yeah. So so he is a frontier missionary bishop. Mm-hmm. Um so, so, yeah, I mean, we have to think in our minds, you know, cut off the Western United States because it was not the United States. Right, right. So he's the missionary bishop to the Southwest. Southwest, yes, which is not yeah. <laughs> very different. Huge territory. <laughs> very different territory, very different Southwest than yes, what we have today. Indeed, um, indeed. And he ends up also, he, he ends up getting to New Orleans. Right. And this is during... 1853 Yellow Fever epidemic. Okay, so, the, and I know you've done some work on this. Right. Um, and uh, because you've done, you've done some work on this, especially in, in actually this area, the Shreveport area. So the yellow fever, um, it, how often did it, was it something that reoccurred and, and struck several times through to that yes. general time period? Yes. Um, it was sort of a constant kind of presence. Yeah. Um, it didn't necessarily hit every summer and fall, but, um, but because it is a mosquito-borne illness. Mm-hmm. Um, several places, particularly in the South, have just the right conditions. Um, it, it is not person to person transmittable. Mm-hmm. Like I'm infected, I can't give it to you because we're sitting really? here talking. No. Okay. What it requires is a vector of the mosquito. So I'd have to be bitten by a mosquito who would then bite you. That's how it's transmitted. Which in this type of swampy environment. So if you have a, a, a large, getting... if you have a large mosquito population, if you have a densely populated area, transient populations, because people can bring it, they can, people can be infected with it and not know it, and bring it, be bitten by by an uninfected mosquito, and now you've infected the entire population. So, it was a frequent visitor to the South, and I mean Philadelphia had a had a, a very bad uh, epidemic at the end of the 18th century. Um, there's, of course, uh, along the, the Atlantic coast, Charleston, Savannah, Atlanta, um, the, the, the worst on record, I believe is the 1853 in new Orleans, but the one that happened in Shreveport in 1873, which Polk of course didn't live to see, um, it's the third worst on record. And you've done lately, you've been, you were part of a film and the writing of a book currently in in the works on the Shreveport. Yeah, right. At so epidemic. There's a there's a documentary that will be out this fall, um, chronicling really the, the story of five Roman Catholic priests that gave their lives in the eighteen seventy three yellow fever epidemic. Um, the book about them, The Surest Path to Heaven, the Shreveport Martyrs of eighteen seventy three, will also be out at the end of this year by the same publisher that published the Pope book in twenty thirteen. Okay. The, the history press out of Charleston. I'll make sure to make a note in yeah. our episode of that title to look out for the title. Look out for the when, title once it gets released. Yeah. So, so, so I do have a great interest in um, in yellow fever and the South, particularly. Sure. Um, well, gosh, I, I'm definitely interested to read that, and then just some other things in general about yellow fever. I'm yeah. pretty. Unf- I mean, we don't have it anymore. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist. There's several hundred cases a year, particularly in West Africa. Parts of Asia have reported it, but um, there is there's no outbreaks in in the United States anymore. Okay, um, it's the same mosquito, however, that carries uh, West Nile virus and hmm. uh, the, the Zika virus we had a couple of years ago. Same yeah. mosquito. So, 
there are more deaths caused by mosquitoes than anything else in the world. Any other animal. It's hard That's going to be one of those questions when I get to heaven. I'm going to ask God, why did you? Why did you give so much power to the mosquito? <laughs> because the bass need to eat, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> you give them so much mortal mortal power. That's right. Yeah. Um, so he's, Polk's part of the founding of Sewanee. Right. Right. That was University something. In Bishop Odie as well. Yes, Bishop Odie okay. was as well. And uh, a lot, I'm Several one of Several other f- signatories. Yeah, I'm one of the few clergy here in this directed. <laughs> it seems like if you're a, Episcopal priest in the South, that means you went to Salonia. That's almost the case. It's not quite. Uh, but but yes, uh, so he's uh, hugely important as far as yeah. the ongoing training of priests today because there's still an active, and a university. It's a right. liberal arts college. It's a liberal arts college. Um, and uh, Some people still call it the Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain, mm-hmm. right. So mm-hmm. one of the, the you know, one, one, of the, one of the best schools in the South from what I understand. And right. so and we wouldn't be here without him. Um, and then, so kind of getting in, now as we kind of march into war, right. um, into the Civil War, because he's, he's serving in ministry all this time. Right. And then he's um, he's kind of hesitant at first, but he ends up kind of finding his way back into the military. So yeah. over yeah. kind of, uh, how did that really transpire? Well, when he was recording, you know, his, his former um uh, schoolmate, classmate at West Point, Jefferson Davis, um, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was a, um, of course, a, a general in the Confederate Army, was also uh, an, was an upperclassman at, at West Point when uh, when Polk was a student there. But they knew each other, mm-hmm. and um, so when Jefferson called upon Jefferson Davis called upon Leonidas Polk for military service, saying he would give him a commission as a general. Polk hesitated, but I don't think his hesitation was that he didn't want to be in military service. Mm -hmm. His hesitation was who would care for his people. And so I I do think that that's something that sometimes gets glossed over in his story. And I I make a point of it in the book that he didn't turn his back on being a bishop. Um, he wanted to make sure that the people would be pastorally provided for right. before he committed himself. And and once he had made up his mind, and again, I think it goes back to this, this DNA that he has that is this separatist kind of patriotism, this zeal for that, and also this, this understanding of the church, church and state as being separate entities. He, he saw that clearly. That once he had covered one realm, you know, Mm -hmm. he had no trouble turning to the military and saying, this is, and he called it this, the duty next. That's what he called it. When you said over time uh, in your book, you mentioned how there's kind of a fusion of how, of his bishop identity and his, which kind of contributes to, I mean, not just the Confederacy part, but this is just another controversial Point. I mean, we have military chaplains, but to someone to kind of be that right. office, that general, and the and the ecclesiastical person, that just became, the enmeshing of one. them is, and um, I think it's the only way ultimately that he could reconcile them. Okay. Um, he, you know, the, the one of the other more famous quote that's attributed to him is that he was asked how he could do it. How hmm. how can you be a bishop? And and be a general, and he said, it, you know, basically, and I'm paraphrasing now. It's easy. <laughs> I put the sword over my bishop's gown. Yeah. And and that I, I think is is where you're taking away from the book what where I talk about this fusion of how right. how he eventually has to come to the realization that he that he can't shed one to take on sure. the other, but he right. did want to make sure his people were cared for. And we'll be very careful about that. That he could leave the spiritual duty of his diocese to take up his duty next. And what does he do in his duty next except baptize soldiers on the eve of battle? Give Mm -hmm. the last rites on the battlefield to soldiers who are dying. Performing wedding ceremonies for officers in the ranks. I mean, he's continuing to function very much. And I would say, argue in ways that kind of transcend even that of a chaplain, mm-hmm. because he uses right his office right to do these things. Yeah, you know, which is like, gosh, how do you look at that now? It's like part of part of you, you're tempted to be like, 
like well like he still like brought people to god and then but then there's also the part like is it's appropriate to to blend those two things to blend those two things you know so it's so so i was interested you know um as a medieval historian Mm -hmm. i was really interested are there any examples in history of men who have gone into battle as bishops i know that there are we've had warrior priests before i mean that's happened before and the farther you go back in the past wars a way of life and it's seen it's not seen as problematic And then, I thought, you know, you know, so so there's surely examples in the past of bishops that have gone into battle, and interestingly, there aren't that many. That, oh, fine. really? So so surprised. so the thing is that that they might be present in the the effort of the crusade, but yeah. they're not riding into battle. Bishop Odo, who was half brother to William the Conqueror, we're talking about 11th century. He's the only real example I could find that's even somewhat yeah close to yeah. So I do think there's always been that understanding that you have this man of God who doesn't take up arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, I mean, he's hesitant at first, but once he's in, it sounds like he's, he's in. in. He's in. And he starts, it, it, it starts, like you said, like the, the two identities of himself start to fuse together, but also... Um, his theology, especially his, his ecclesiology, is affected right. by it. And you right. talked in the book by about how he had a concept of an independent diocese. Because for, I mean, a lot of our listeners, are no, we're not like an Episcopal Anglican-specific podcast, but like the polity or governing structure of the Episcopal Church is like we have bishops. There's a right. formal hierarchy of sorts. Uh, and uh, churches come together to make up diocese there's convocations in that too but for some some simple reasons they they make up dioceses um priests had individual parishes congregations while the bishops in charge of the diocese and but all the dioceses recognize themselves as being part of the 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 episcopal church which is also part of the anglican communion but when the civil war happens you have on the secular side a separation of in the country northern states versus southern states so what does that mean regionally, geographically, but also theologically for churches that are north and south, dioceses that are north and south? Are, is the church now split? And I guess he now he was he differed from other colleagues on secession. Right, others were not willing to go to the lengths that he did right, as right. far as justifying. Yeah, I think I think once that, church. once that he once the Civil War happened and and the the Episcopal Church, like many other. Uh, Protestant denominations may well have affected the Catholic Church as well. I mean, because you're you're geographically identifiable mm-hmm. as being belonging to a Confederate state versus a Union state. Mm-hmm. Um, not many went as far as he would go, which was to say that that the um, the state of Louisiana, the Episcopal Church in Louisiana, could be its own entity, separate and apart from any sure. other governing structure. Mm-hmm. Which, which is obviously taking taking that ecclesiology now down to a more local congregational local. kind of level or diocesan level perhaps, right. but but still not really any any model for that existed in the United States before the Civil War right. for for the Episcopal Church or any other denomination. But he also saw it as like, well, we're so Anglo- we, we see them ourselves yeah. spiritually. We're with in continuity. The Anglican, sure. right? So it was kind of almost like a. An invisible kind of Catholicity. An invisible kind of Catholicity, which in those themes have been, I mean, there's been... It cuts through Anglicanism. Yeah, it cuts through Anglicanism. I mean, I would argue it cuts through the visible or invisible, that tension there has always been kind of a part of just being Christian in general. Because, you know, how, 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 you know, there there are spiritual realities and and there's a fallen world. And so it's like there's right. always that type of right. tension. Um, but but he certainly saw no difficulty with that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as a general, um, you mentioned how in your book how historians have gone so far as to suggest the blame for the Confederate loss can actually be squarely yes. put on Polk's shoulders yes. for his invasion of Kentucky. Right. Um, yeah, his invasion so of that, Kentucky is... Sort of seen as the, I think, a major turning point for many. And I'm not a military historian. I want your your listeners to know that. And I'm not either. I, I uh, because my interest my interest in war is is always more about the social effect or mm-hmm. impact. Um, 
So, so I'm not speaking as a military historian, but I will tell you that I do. I've read enough of it to know that 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 historians of this war are very divided about mm. about his role. Um, he is not generally viewed well. He's not he's not seen as particularly um, effective either strategically or tactically. Right. Um, he was serially insubordinate. He could not follow an order if his life depended on it. <laughs> well, and, of course, ultimately in the end. It, well, and you, um, you, you keep tying it back to that separatist. That Scottish separatist. Thing. And well, there's, a, there's kind of this undercurrent of arrogance in his personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, this that I think is very, um, very um, effectively demonstrated in his relationship with Braxton Bragg. Okay. Um, and, of course, General Bragg was removed from command by Jefferson Davis because, in large part, because of his conflict with, with Polk. Mm-hmm. And Polk never followed a, never followed an order. And so there are many Civil War historians who look at his actions in Kentucky when he was asked to be sensitive to, to, um, to the situation. Now, Kentucky, for those people that don't know, Kentucky is what we call a border state. It was immediately occupied by federal troops is the reason it didn't secede from the Union. So you have strong union sentiments in some part of the state and strong secessionist sentiments in other communities. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I think either side wanted, either federal or Confederate wanted, was something that would tip the balance one way or the other there. Because it was was sort of, as I said, a border state. It was... was, To be neutral land, I guess, for lack of a better like, like yeah. Maryland. Maryland was the same, right? Well, in Missouri, in Missouri, uh, one of the is side note that one of the when I went to the, the Vicksburg battlefield, right. one of the most beautiful monuments, my favorite one, was the Missouri one, because it was trying to. I mean, it's all it's all in retrospect, right? But because it was neutral, but they had sympathizers for the North and right. the South right. in that state. And I guess there were people that voluntarily in that state got up and went to fight for either the North or the South. They made a monument for, like, just all of them. And it tried to tie a theme of brotherhood and, 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 you know, being a country united in the end type thing. And, and, you know, it was was actually very interesting the way they tied that together. Yeah. I'm sorry, you no, you no, were on I mean, So he he defied orders and uh, and and made aggressive maneuvers into Kentucky mm-hmm. that probably pushed Kentucky more federal mm-hmm. in their uh, in their leanings. I think what many people would have agreed was a, was a pretty tenuous time. And so um, there are Civil War historians who will say, "Well, that really cost the South the war." I mean, they'll go so far as to right. say that. Right. Um, others don't give him that much. Um, cred mm-hmm. or that much that much emphasis but um but clearly he is not a standout among the commanders that right. the confederacy had and uh he was and he was killed in action right? he was he, killed in he action. did not survive the war no and it was like the last year too. I mean, he was, was almost done june 14th 1864 so we are less than a year away from surrender at Appomattox. Okay, so it was still another year. Yeah, okay. still well, not quite another year. June to April. Okay. Um, he, um, yeah, was was surveying a um, uh, a Union artillery line along a ridge, Pine mm-hmm. Mountain, uh, during the uh, part of of, uh, of Sherman's Atlanta campaign, and uh, was walking along a ridge in clear view of Union artillery, mm-hmm. and he yeah. took a cannonball right through the chest. Oh my gosh. Hard to imagine this. The war is so different now. A war, so much of war, not all of it by any means. Um, there's still face-to-face combat, but it's so much more. The technology has changed. Right. The nature of war so much, right. and to think of, so I mean, we see the movies, I guess, and that can kind of give us a, a you know, a gra- and sometimes it, it can really give us a good picture graphically wise, but uh, it's not the same as being. Being there and yeah. and that being the reality of and war was such a uh, much more a way of life and yeah. so it's just yeah it's and you know but that's I mean one of the things about this episode as a whole is that I hope it could take our listeners I mean our episodes jump all over different time periods I mean we've jumped all over different time periods yeah in this, yeah, in this, this one episode right, one yeah episode, and right. so I I hope that this for our listeners brought um, you know 
brought people. Um, I hope so too. You know, just gave them some context, gave them uh, an appreciation of different time periods and the people who lived in them, uh, who bear, have some importance for today, um, uh, with flaws and controversial aspects of them. Um, uh, even with that there. So, uh, Dr. White, thank you for thank being you for having on me. the show, uh, for our listeners tune in. We're going to have another episode in just, uh, in a week from now, we're doing an episode on Billy Graham with our good friend, Stephen, Stephen Burnett, which you all know. So, uh, so, uh, we look forward to that. And, uh, but Dr. White, thank you again. And thank we will definitely me. put, um, a note in for your upcoming book. And I look forward uh, to seeing you again as I stay in this great state of Louisiana and, uh, and catching up with you, you soon. Okay. You definitely will. Well, thank you. God bless. And for our listeners, we'll, uh, we'll, ha- we'll see you when you tune in next time. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doff Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at doffprotesttoomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.